The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Surprisingly, maybe for us, you know, when we get, a lot of us at least, when we get interested in Buddhism, we often get attracted to the more esoteric part of the practice where we hear teachings about the Buddha's thoughts about view or understanding and how this sense of self isn't what it appears to be. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Like, am I a self? Am I not a self? And mostly not very useful to sort of think about. And some of the more mundane parts of life, spiritual life, like Last week we talked about non-harming, and the week before, a couple weeks before, we talked about speech. These more mundane and complex and difficult parts of our life, in terms of actually being a happier human being, if we bring awareness to these places, it really, like the amount of happiness that is available from just being more awake, around the words that we use or how we act in the world in terms of harming ourselves and others, just paying more attention, not in a judging way, but just in a clear, non-judging way, it really changes things. The torment. I bought a, an e-book the other day. I normally don't read books just because I'm busy and when I'm looking for distraction, I go elsewhere. But uh, there's this book that uh, said it got good reviews. I think it was a nas- national book finalist and, and it was a apocalyptic book, which I sort of like those. But not, not in a terribly grim way, although most of the world dies. <laughs> But, but there's some beautiful things like no cell phones anymore. <laughs> and you can see the night sky. But anyway, just to open our minds about how much availability of happiness, how much availability there is simply by getting interested in this area of life we call ethical conduct. Because mostly we just want to boohoo it because we have this problem having been raised with this, you know, you should, and then we internalize it and we think we should be this way, we should be doing that. And so whenever a thought around ethical conduct comes up in our mind, it always feels like a burden. I, I should be good. I should give more money away to just causes. I should, I should, I should. I shouldn't say that to this person. I shouldn't gossip. You know, I shouldn't eat meat. I shouldn't, and on and on like that. I shouldn't be driving a car. And then it just feels like a weight. And then all we want to do is like fly halfway around the world and go to this huge resort on a tropical paradise and drink artificially colored drinks and... (laughs) Poison our mind with alcohol or other chemicals and, you know, things like that. So, 
we want to see the practical place for bringing awareness to these sticky places. So tonight I want to talk about sexuality and sex and the fact that we are sexual beings and this is a place where there is so much confusion and so much suffering. And it doesn't matter. I know a lot of people think, well, you know, maybe when I was young, but now I'm older. I just had my birthday in 57. It's like, it's, yeah, it changes. But the potential for suffering and just because it, uh, that big ball of fire we call you know, sexual energy, just because it isn't maybe burning as bright, doesn't mean it's not there. It often means we're just more clever at suppressing and repressing sexual energy as we get older, not that there's actually less. One of the interesting things that we learn simply by the, cultivating this more direct and honest awareness in life is that although the body ages, the mind doesn't age, but we think it should be aging, so we kind of pretend that it's aging, but our mind isn't, my mind is not 57 years old. This body is 57 years old, whatever that means, but you can check whatever physical age your body is. Is there anything about your mind that is that age? No. And of course, part of being a sexual being is physical, is chemical. Maybe those, some of those aspects certainly seem to shift over the years. But a lot of that whole world of sexuality is mind. And that doesn't necessarily change. So the first thing, of course, is, like I mentioned, just to appreciate that these areas where we harm, where we have joy, real joy or real pleasure, and set emotion, real suffering, obviously this is worthy of paying attention, bringing a lot of attention to. What is this? How is it operating in my life? And a lot of humility. So is there anybody in the room who hasn't made a fool out of themselves in this area of life. Please stand up. <laughs> because we could assist you. <laughs> of course, we all have many, many times. And even thinking that we haven't is one of the ways we make a fool out of ourselves. Like thinking that somehow, you know, we've been skillful. Because a lot of the way people think they've been skillful, like I said earlier, is through suppression or repression, like just not going there. So culturally, and remember this, sexuality exists as a cultural force, very strong cultural force. Of course, every one of us slightly differently culturally programmed. And then, of, of course, there's the genetic and the chemical, physical conditioning and then there's our own psychological condition, like what we've done with our cultural programming and our chemical conditions and biological conditions and all of our personal experiences. What has our mind constructed around those experiences? And one thing we tend to do with things that are mysterious and can get us in trouble and hard to control is we tend to suppress and hide and shut it down and put danger signs over it, you know, don't go there, that's dirty, that's wrong, that's, you know, various versions of that. 
And then we call that being skillful. So we want to begin with a sense of curiosity and interest because it's just so much part of human existence being a sexual being. I mean, just the, what now, of course, it's a little bit easier for people to express a, a great diversity of sexual orientations and sexual activity. And so, but to just the, uh, you know, to respect just on this simple level of reproduction, just to respect the force of evolution and uh, to think that somehow we can outthink the forces of nature. It's really our job is to learn how to open up to them with wisdom, to understand what they are, and to make peace with them, not to get tight around them. So let me read a few things, share a few things. This is from Reb Anderson. He's a well-known Zen teacher, former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. Some of you maybe, like I did way back when, when I first got started, read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, one of the first books here in the States written by Suzuki Roshi. It's just based on some talks that he gave. And uh, Reb Anderson was a student of Suzuki Roshi and followed him as the abbot of the San Francisco, San Francisco Zen Center. And this is a book called Being Upright, where Reb Anderson is writing about the, uh, these ethical precepts that exist in Buddhism. And this is chapter 15. Nothing is wished for, not misusing sexuality. How does sexual greed arise? So he's, he's really investigating in his own life and now talking about it out loud, investigating how it is that desire arises. And you know, in the East, it's a little different than the materialistic orientation in the West. In the West, whether we own it or not, in fact, we know it's a religion because we don't think of it as a religion. We're all in the school or in the religious school of materialism. Right? We believe that all of this comes out of this material existence. You know, the primordial ocean, and then things got mixed around, and then there were these little creatures, and then bigger creatures, and after many years, this really complex creature. And then whatever we have as our experience of a mind, that's simply the natural expression of this biological thing we call the brain. Right? Don't we, isn't that our faith? We go, we go to our, our sort of uh, religious schools and we learn biology. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's wrong or I'm not even saying it's not a good religion. I'm just saying it's a view, you know, it's a, and like you talk to anybody with any other kind of religious view and they'll say, yeah, but you can prove it. In some ways, you know, you look at things and it's true. But we could also say that, like in the East, they talk about physical existence being expression of the mind. Sort of a different point of view. Like the gross, like physical existence, 
is a reflection of the subtle instead of the subtle, the mind, coming out of the gross biology or material existence. Now, I'm not telling you what is true or not true, but just to let's at least have an open mind that we don't really know. And actually, how can we know? But what we want to do is keep an open mind about it. So he's going to talk about it from this other point of view, like sexuality not just being this, because it's a nice story when you talk about material existence and evolution and survival of the fittest and the you know, reproduction and those who are you know, highly sexualized where they have more kids and they get you know, more likely their genes, their predispositions that are mutated into their genes are more likely then to dominate in future generations. And all of a sudden, you know, after many, many, many generations, you get a highly sexualized species like human beings because that's been selected for. So this is a spiritual interpretation or subtle to gross interpretation coming from Reb Anderson now. So how does sexual greed arise? Self and other are seen as separate. We project reality upon the separation. From a belief in the reality of this perception, the peaceful mind of the oneness of self and other is obscured. This belief wounds our consciousness, right? The belief that we're, that there's this thing apart wounds our consciousness. It creates a reverberation that we call anxiety or existential anxiety. This thought that we believe in of me being a part. This belief wounds our consciousness and the wound is a, a source of anxiety and pain. A powerful impulse arises to reunite the split mind. Right? So he's talking about it now in terms of the mind or you could say psychology. There's a fundamental uneasiness in our heart, in our mind, in our psychology and we seek to reduce or to get rid of that fundamental anxiety. And we do it in all kinds of ways. You, do, you can do ecstatic dancing and have moments of merging into the rhythms and the crowd and the movement. You know, you can overeat, you can watch TV, you can have sex and have maybe a moment of being so absorbed in the sensations that you forget the sense of being... You, the mind literally forgets to construct the experience of separation for a moment. And you get, you know, and maybe you've heard this in French, the word for orgasm means a little death, right? That's sort of the mind drop. What's the phrase? Like he said. <laughs> Pierre is French. But it's, it's like, it's interesting how these phrases, this sort of deep understandings are just part of our Understanding, but we don't often, like, where did that phrase come from? Like, what was the experience? What did somebody see or understand that we, then we stop really paying attention? But there is that in any kind of absorption, when we're really fully in an experience, then we drop the activity of constructing a separation, a sense of separation. And then, of course, we think it was the sex that was so special, or the knitting, or one-on-one basketball, <laughs> or whatever it was, you know, eating food. 
but it was the mind was absorbed in the activity and it dropped constructing a sense of isolation, of alienation, of a me who wants to reunite. Because as long as I'm busily identifying with the sense of separation, then that sense creates a yucky feeling in the same way when we were a kid and we were convinced there was a monster under the bed or in the closet or that our parents weren't going to come back. I had to go to the hospital when I was four or five, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, I I was convinced my parents were going to come back. And uh, that's a, you know, that's a terrible feeling. And of course, when I have that idea in my mind, it doesn't matter whether they're going to come back or not. So it doesn't matter that there's not a monster in the closet. The fact that the mind has constructed the idea that there's a a monster in the closet, then there's that feeling. So if our mind, like it does, constructs the sense of separation, there's me and then there's all of you. There's the world out there, which is our basic, ordinary psychological stance, me alone in this world, trying to find my way, trying to find happiness, trying to find some kind of connection, some kind of release from the pain of alienation, right? But the fact that I have to do something to get rid of my alienation reasserts, reinforces the experience of alienation. Do you see why that's true? It's the same thing like if I've got to fight that monster, if I've got to hide under the covers, it just makes it more real. Because if it weren't real, I wouldn't really need to hide. But because it is real, I need the light on. I need to, you know, all these sort of things to manage the pain of separation. So he's talking about, and of course this pain gets acted out. And one of the places it gets acted out is sex or our sexual activities, or our sexual identity. All of us, in our own particular way, in our own very diverse or unique way, given all of the forces that sort of make us the sexual being that we are. So back to Reb's comment, so I'm skipping around a bit. Sexual greed is powerful because, it is, because at its root is this deep pain of separation. We will do almost anything. We will do almost anything, grab onto anyone. If we feel it will help close the painful gap and heal the wound. We must recognize that in our wounded state, we are dangerous to ourselves and to others as well. Acting out sexual greed is actually a form of stealing. Stealing, sexual stealing. The precept of not misusing sexuality is concerned with reversing the process of wounding. It points to a way of turning from sexual stealing into sexual healing. And this is obvious, I think, I'm guessing, to most of us. The, and of course, your version of sexual greed maybe doesn't seem that toxic. But we've all seen, we all know the difference between that sort of hungry, really wanting, really needing, and 
sexual or other kinds of physical affectionate interactions with other human beings that, are, that can be deeply healing. And one way we know the difference is what's the aftertaste? What reverberation continues when we've had a sexual interaction with another person or without another person, when we've had some sexual activity that was some attempt to appease the pain of greed, of need, of dependency, and when the activity had the flavor of healing, where the activity itself is revealing to ourselves maybe that there isn't any uh, existential separation that needs to be healed. Right? Sometimes when we're with another human being or with a group of human beings or alone, sometimes our experience is such that we wonder what all that existential sense of separation of pain was all about because now it's not there. There's a real sense of wholeness and a healing sense of wholeness. Sometimes it's just a simple interaction with another human being feeling really met. And it's just interesting how it shifts how we are as a sexual being, whether how we are as a sexual being is being fueled by this kind of greed, trying to uh, solve a problem that isn't really what it appears to be. Like a one Dharma teacher calls it barking, a, a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Right? So when we have this constructed idea of a me who needs this sexual activity, this sexual interaction, the sexual whatever, in order to resolve something that I have, you know, some need, deep need in me, but the thing is, maybe that isn't there in the way that it appears today. Maybe that's a constructed need. Like the idea of being separate, if that's not actually true, then the idea that I'm separate and I need this experience to be whole, you see, we'll always be disappointed because we're not actually separate. So we seek a resolution to that pain in a way that will never deliver because it was a mistaken perception to begin with. The resolution comes in understanding that the experience of separation isn't what it appears to be. It's a construction, a temporary construction of the mind. It's not a reality. And so it really shifts. And you could talk about this in terms of all of our relationships, like we do often, we talk about the circle of giving and receiving. So this flow of this movement of receiving and giving as one activity, like the activity of generosity, generously receiving, generously giving. It's not about the separate self who needs something. And then sex becomes a business relationship. You give me what I need and I'll give you what you need and we'll call it even. right? And that's sort of how we play the game a lot of the time. And it, I'm not saying it's always bad. I mean, there are things that can be worse than that sort of interaction. I mean, that's how we operate most of the time. And as long as it's 
uh, not involving some power differential where one person is exploiting the other, that's okay. But what we'd like is for these places in our life not just to, to be places where we have this business relationship and nobody's getting badly hurt, but we're not really resolving the underlying problem. But we'd like these places in our life to be places where we can practice and we can have a deeper kind of healing. And so Reb goes there a little bit later in this chapter. He says, The first step in reversing this process is to face our woundedness and greed to whatever extent they exist. Next, we gradually become intimate with the wound and with the greed. This is bitter work. It's bitter work because feeling that woundedness, feeling that greed, well, it's unpleasant. Which is why we seek to gratify desire. Because desiring is an unpleasant feeling. Craving something, needing, having the idea that if only, then I'll be happy. That's a painful feeling to have. Which is why we desperately want to gratify it. Because when we gratify desire... There's a temporary release of the desire of the pain that our mind was constructing itself. So I see somebody I'm attracted to. I'm a married person. I see somebody who I'm attracted to. And I can create this problem. Like I'm married. I've committed. And I, but I really, I'm attracted. I'd like, but I can't. I shouldn't. And so there's this pain. And the way it appears in the mind is that pain's not going to go away unless I gratify it. We forget that this mind constructed that pain. We could have been happily going along through life and then we see somebody who is attractive attractive to us and our mind then constructs pain. It says, ah, if only. And it's the same with Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> And the same with a nice house or the same with, you know, whatever it is. Getting into shape, being the person we want to be. The mind constructs an idea, an image. And then, all of a sudden, not okay. Me, not okay. That, very okay. Me, want that. <laughs> Me, not happy. How could I be happy when I want that? Come on, it's got to be one or the other. Either that's heaven, that's salvation then that means this is hell, because this is not that. You see, so the experience of being a suffering being is something the mind constructs as soon as it has an idea of me being happy as an abstraction that it imagines for itself. Then how can this be okay? It's not okay. So then, to prove to myself, to be consistent, I'll make this unpleasant. And how do we make that unpleasant? We go like this. I really want that. We get tight. With this. And I'm not going to let go of that tension until I get this. And then when we do get that, if we're lucky and we get what we want, then we stop doing this. And then we feel, wow, that feels so good to get what I wanted. But you see, it's really insane. We made the tension, we released it. And this is a lot like sexual tension too. Tension and release. It is really the driving force of, you know, civilization and just of neurotic human activity, tension and release. We create tension, we release tension. And then it just drives us to create more tension so we can release it. 
We're sitting here, we're wondering how nice it will be to be at home, right? And we create a little tension because that image of being at home is attractive, whatever that image looks like to you. And then this is, so we build the tension. Or we imagine something in the future that's not pleasant, you know? And so we try to hold on to this moment because this is what we want, not what I have to do tomorrow morning. So we get tight for that reason too. So whether it's aversion or greed, there's tightness. So we need to open to this woundedness. And he says, moment by moment, standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, we vow to be intimate, to be upright with this great ball of fire. If we turn away from our sexual passion, then we freeze and harm living beings. If we grab it, then we are burned and beings are harmed. But if we just stay close to it, walk around it, always in touch with the fact that we are sexual beings, neither identifying nor distancing ourselves from our sexuality, then we gradually become intimate with it. From this intimacy, appropriate sexual conduct spontaneously emerges. We know this intimate warmth and we know this intimate warmth and love are there, but we do not reveal it until the time is right. Right, because like all things, sexual energy is also a movement. All emotions are movement, thoughts are movement, sensations are movement. The whole essence of our sitting practice and our daily life practice is to learn to be intimate with the way it is, to wake up, to be mindfully aware of how it is. Well, how it is is movement. Everything is a flow. Everything. That's a sign that your, your practice is maturing. As you see, experience the body, you experience it as a movement of sensation. You notice the mind, you notice it as a movement of thought and emotion. You notice the world around you, sight, sound. It's a flow of sound, a river of sound, a river of sight, of visual information. Everything is emotion. So in terms of sexual energy, if we stay intimate with it, present with it, then some moments there's a sort of a beautiful alignment where what's moving internally can, be, can move externally, can be acted out or be expressed because it's okay, it's safe, nobody's getting harmed. And sometimes what's moving internally, it's not appropriate to express it externally. There's not an alignment. But it's okay because we don't have to suppress it. We can just let it move. We know how to be with it without being identified with it or being afraid of it, needing to suppress it. We don't have to deny that we're a sexual being. We just need to understand it's just a movement of energy and it's like this now. Can this be okay? Not stop it. You know, we shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't be that way. No, it's like this. And we know what to pay attention to. Like we're paying attention to that it's moving and that it's natural and maybe that it's pleasant or maybe that it's unpleasant. But we're not paying attention to if only if only I can act it out. No, because we're, we've learned how to be okay with the energy. And the thing about bodily energies, like the more energetic aspect of sexual, sexual energy, is it has its own intelligence. It's because we 
project or impose so much on it that things get messy, literally messy. But we can just, like energy knows how to move. If we're not putting brakes or neurotic fear or neurotic ideas on it, but we just let it move. And then eventually, you know, if we're fortunate enough, there will be alignments and we'll have a sexual encounter of some kind with our partner or with whoever. You know, a lot of, we read, I read this morning when I was giving this talk, um, the comments we read from Thich Nhat Hanh, he's a well-known Buddhist monk from, uh, from Vietnam originally, but he's been teaching in the West for a long time. And um, he wrote some commentary for each of the five precepts that some of us take as lay people. It's sort of a tradition in Buddhist communities to recite these five lay precepts. I undertake the training not to harm living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from stealing, taking things that haven't been given. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech, slanderous speech, harsh speech, and idle speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. Right? So these are the five trainings that we undertake. This is sort of uh, part of like formally saying, hey, these teachings from the Buddha make a lot of sense. I'm going to align myself with these teachings. So we take these five precepts. And one of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh says with these five precepts is we undertake the training or we pick up the training not to engage in sexual activities unless there's a commitment. But I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I kind of always thought that, but today, this morning, a younger woman said, well, you know, that might be generational. That wasn't the word she used, but, you know, it may be that the younger generation has a different attitude around sexual encounters, and that may be true. I don't know. And fortunately, as I'm getting older, and I mentioned this at the beginning, I have a lot more humility, especially around things like sexuality, than I had when I was younger, and it seems healthy that way. So it isn't about me or somebody imposing ideas on what it should look like, but it's more this direct and immediate understanding, what are our, as a sexual being, and as a being involved in sexual activity, what is getting set in motion? What imprint, you know, our activity as a sexual being, what imprint is it making on our heart and mind? What's getting set in motion? What are we becoming through our sexual activity or through being a sexual being. And is that who or what we want to become? That's really the question that we want to be asking ourselves. Let me just finish this up. We vow to stay upright, to stay close to our passion, constantly working with it, dancing with it. It is always there and we are present too. It may get stronger or weaker according to circumstances, but we are working with it all the time. And this is just, a, in general, a good um, training for those of us interested in awareness practice, that we don't think about these 
difficult, confusing, intense, subtle places in our life as like, I want to practice or I don't have to practice anymore. We actually want our awareness practice like enlightenment or full awakening, whatever that might be. It doesn't mean that we stop practicing. It's a a deepening realization that the awareness and the wisdom and the skill is a force of nature. It's not like a human being, an awakened human being like the Buddha or one of our enlightened ancestors, the women and men who preceded us who had good practice. It's not like they ever stop practicing. They don't. But the idea that there's somebody practicing gets radically transformed. So the practice is literally a force of nature. In the same way spring is moving in, I mean, that's a huge force of nature. I mean, just think about how much happens as winter and all the melting. And, you know, how much ground is frozen in Minnesota, right? All of that thermal, whatever, coolness is dissipated. And warmth penetrates and moisture penetrates and the activity of the life begins again, right? And all the trees, I've been noticing all the trees weeping, you know, where there are little wounds in the trees and the sap getting sucked up through the roots coming. And I mean, it's a huge force, but nobody does it, right? There's nobody doing winter to spring. There's no like, control tower, (laughs) sort of giving instructions. There's no center to the activity. And this is a powerful metaphor for what is true for us. The difference is, with our language-based thinking minds, we can construct the idea, it's a concept, of a control tower, i.e. me or you. And it's a very compelling idea. It's kind of hard to shake that idea once it gets in the mind. It's seductive. Meaning that idea tends to trigger another idea from the same point of view. And then another idea from the same point of view. And all of a sudden it's sort of the character of the mind to think, to imagine in this way as a separate uh, kind of entity with a center, an agent operating alone in this world, trying to find happiness. It's such a compelling story, right? And we look for happiness outside of understanding the pain of isolation, the pain of alienation. So in a way, all of our work, paying attention to sexuality, paying attention to the breath, paying attention to every aspect, is to learn how to develop enough steadiness, enough integrity and interest to look at that existential pain to see what it actually is. Instead of just believing what we're conditioned to think it is. I'm a lonely guy looking for happiness, you know, in love, that sort of romantic ideal. that somebody out there, some guy, some woman, some gender-neutral person, there's somebody out there that is going to make me happy. That's what we think. Or something like that. Or 
I can't make it with anyone. You know, so I'm going to do it alone. Or something like that. But there's some conviction, some deep belief in the idea of separation and it undermines a very straightforward investigation. What is this existential pain of separation, of alienation, of aloneness? What is that? What's a feeling being known? What happens if I relax with that instead of acting it out? What happens if I just relax with that pain? And then what kind of sexual beings do we become when the sexual energy that we have to live with, neither good nor bad, it's just another expression of nature, what kind of sexual beings are we when our sexual activity isn't charged by this neurotic sense of being apart? I'll just end with this uh, passage from another Zen teacher, Jan Chosen Bay. She's a well-known Zen teacher in Portland. And uh, she's also a pediatrician who's worked, even though she's like been a full-time meditation teacher, she's also been a pediatrician working with children who have uh, experienced sexual abuse. So she's been right in the middle of this. And she talks about, well, let me just read a little bit. The precepts have been compared to dikes in a rice field. They hold back and channel the rushing water of our passions so that life is not flooded, so that smaller and more helpless creatures are not harmed and the harvest of our life, life's efforts is not ruined. These precepts prohibit those actions that have a bad outcome and cause harm to ourselves or others almost all, maybe 99.999% of the time. And she goes on to ask, well, what about that 0.001% of the time? which is always what we think, what we always rationalize our need. Like, this is, it will be okay this time. And this is especially true, like with sexual energy, where there are big power differentials, teachers and students, adults and children, and often through history, men and women, right? The uh, power differential and the kind of suffering and abuse that regularly happens in this area. And it all then, because of that, because our sexual energy is being charged with this neurotic pain of separation, then wanting to resolve that pain through sexual activity becomes unbearable. So people do despicable things sometimes. And even those of us in healthy, loving relationships, even we are unskillful, speaking for myself, some or even a lot of the time, where our ordinary sexual activities aren't healing, but in some small little way are acting out and reinforcing the very thing we want to resolve, which is this feeling of isolation. I mean, that's why good sex stands out. I mean, really good sex is when there's a sense of unity and the healing that comes from it. But, you know, that's not often the case. Or maybe for some of you, but for most of us, maybe not often. So, of course, we could, I mentioned this at the end, 
this morning. You know, we could have really wholesome, useful conversations for about 10 years on this subject, but we have an evening and we have some time now. It would be nice to hear from other people what you've learned, questions you might have, or just what comes to mind that you'd like to bring up for the community. Yeah, Danielle. Yeah, I have a question. You mentioned taking on mom. When you talked about anger, he has sort of a method of not necessarily immediately facing. He might get more wrapped up in it. I was wondering, when, you know, if there's a desire that you have and then it kind of turns into that craving and the tightness, and then you look at the, um, at the craving and the tightness and it's just, just so, you know, you're so wrapped around it that it doesn't really break up. Well, it's good to just to acknowledge what you acknowledge that, so if you didn't hear, Danielle talked about anger, that any charged, emotional, afflicted quality that has a big charge, then sometimes we look at it and it doesn't budge. And of course, probably part of wanting to be close to it is we want it to go away. So that means there's some aversion there or some controlling energy, which is going to get fed right back into the charge not allowing it to reveal its changing ephemeral nature. So it's really nice that even when things feel really stuck, that we keep reminding ourselves from our own experience, if you can, or at least, well, the Buddha said. So you can always refer to him, or just from your own experience. You know, whenever I've really opened to something in an even, non-agenda way, it's always been revealed to be ephemeral, something that comes and goes, something that's fluid. So even though this doesn't appear to be that way, I'm assuming it actually is that way, but I just can't see it yet. I'm just not patient enough, or I'm in a hurry, I'm aversive, I'm impatient, and that is giving it the appearance. Because everything's moving, but when the mind has an agenda, it creates friction or creates pressure. And something appears to be solid or fixed or hard or heavy. But it's how the mind is relating more than the pain of anger or the pain of sexual longing. It's what the mind is doing with it. It's creating a personal issue. So then there has to be personal weight. Because the mind, the thinking mind demands consistency. And if we're framing it in terms of a personal problem, then it needs to feel substantial because that's what personal problems feel like. So from this point of view, right, the non-material point of view, the mind constructs experience to fit its ideas of how things are. And there's a lot in psychology that confirms this point of view. People having the same outward appearance have very different internal experiences. Because so much of the experience of the world is something we construct, not what is necessarily happening on the outside. So it's, it's true what you're suggesting, Danielle, that we need to try different things. That's probably the most important response to your comment. Because you'll know, just like you said, if you're just staying there and nothing's happening, probably you need to try something else, like redirecting the attention like bringing in some compassion, or asking yourself, what of this dynamic here 
what is the mind actually paying attention to? Is there another element, another facet or view of this entangled heavy thing that I could pay attention to? Because like with a, uh, a sexually charged experience, it like really matters what we pay attention to. Like if you're on the cusp of, you know, having an, a sexual encounter, if you bring to mind those first tantalizing moments where intimacy is being opened up, well, it's really hard not to be seduced by that. But if you bring into mind the awkwardness of saying goodbye in the morning or something like that, <laughs> it might be relatively easy. You know, if you bring to mind a certain part of the person's body that your mind is conditioned to find attractive or some aspect of that person's personality that you find attractive, then it might be really hard to disengage. But if you bring to mind, you know, their toenails or something else, then it might be relatively easy. So we could ask ourselves, well, what is the mind when I approach this charged thing what is, what is the attention bringing into view? What else could the attention bring into view? So just try bringing different things into view. No. No, because, because it, it balances the conditioned habit to be paying attention to something else. You know, this person is going to save me or this, person with the, this body will be so amazing or whatever, you know, whatever we might be thinking. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. You know, it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, sexuality is a pretty fertile ground for this sort of idea of separation and either reinforcing it or working through it. Would you talk a little bit about why most of these traditions have a celibate monkhood or non you know, nonhood as part of their tradition that you know, you're talking about sort of not just pushing it aside or not just setting it aside, you know, or just setting it aside or pushing it aside or repressing it isn't necessarily the best thing of addressing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can just speak to my own experience. You know, when I, I got really interested in meditation and spiritual life in my 20s, and, uh, and so then I didn't date, didn't have any sexual encounters with another person for almost eight years, uh, 20s into uh, early 30s. And, uh, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> you know, it's like there was a lot, I, I didn't know how to be with that energy. But when I connected with my wife, my now wife, and it was partly uh, what I saw in this person and the, like the friendship but part of it was like part of wanting this monogamous relationship with another person was I wanted to deal with sexual energy in a healthier way than I could being celibate. But it's different for different people. There are some people who can let that sexual energy move without having sexual partners. And there's some people who can't. And some people maybe can't even with one partner, you know. But whatever we do, we have to understand it isn't an end in itself. So if we're interested in deepening understanding, 
we have to get close to sexual energy and we have to be honest and uh, yeah, and just find a way for it to move without harming other beings and harming ourselves, without creating a lot of messiness that distracts us from the deeper pain that we want to take a look at. So I think the, the point is, you know, we want a spectrum of acceptable ways to be a sexual being, from celibacy at one end to multiple partners or whatever the other end might look like. So it would be nice to have a spectrum so that as a being engages one, sort of finds their place, their way of being a sexual being isn't creating a lot of distraction, a lot of remorse. So when they go to bed at night or when they sit and do meditation, they're not a, there's not all this stuff reverberating. That would be nice. Yeah. Time for one last comment. We've kind of opened up the discussion here of the beauty of renunciation. So, um, what is the, how does that work? For sexuality? Well, with everything in general, renunciation. Yeah. But what we're actually, like when people do ascetic practices, like being a celibate, or fasting, or, sh- you know, getting rid of the TV, you know, and there are any number of ways to practice asceticism that can be quite a useful training. It's not about not watching TV or eating ice cream or having sex. It's about using that outward activity to learn something about the mind, the habit of identification or the habit of attachment, because that's what we're renouncing. We're renouncing the craving, the mind's dependency on everything, on having a life even, right? Because the fact is, you know, the big moment of practice will be when this physical life ceases. And why not practice not being dependent on having this physical existence? Because we all know it's going to go. And what's the point of holding when something's going away? And it's the same thing with sexual activities and food and a good TV show, a good novel, they all go away. So why build attachment only to have the disappointment of not being able to have it forever and ever and ever? Why not learn to relate to things as being pleasant sometimes and unpleasant other times without the attachment? So that's really what renunciation is about. It isn't about whether you're acting out your sexuality with other human beings or other beings, or (laughs) you never know. (laughs) Astral beings, celestial beings. (laughs) There are stories from the Buddhist texts, you know, about uh, nuns and monks being seduced by devas, angelic beings coming down and really like being attracted to their purity, their spiritual purity. You know, and honey... (laughs) How about it? <laughs> and a good practitioner then, if they wouldn't be afraid of being a sexual being, they just wouldn't see the point necessarily in going there. It's not like it's bad, which is what we tend to think. And then a lot of religious you know, traditions, they, it turns into something bad. But it's not bad, it's just what it is. 
eating's not bad, pooping's not bad, having a house isn't bad. It would be like, well, being a human being is bad because you have a body, you know, you have sexual organs. It's not bad. It's just the way it is. So from a deeper understanding, celibacy is just a training mechanism that's really useful for some people. And when we're not having sexual activities, it's time to practice being okay not having sexual activities, right? So it's really good to practice being celibate when you're not having a sexual activity because that means you're being free in the experience of not engaged in sexual activity, which is, you know, probably 99.9% of the time for us. We're not... But what we tend to do as sexual beings is imagine sexual activities when we're not involved in sexual activities, which is frustrating if you haven't noticed (laughs) and stressful in the mind. So please continue this conversation with your friends. This is a, like, to ventilate this part of our lives is really good. But right now, let's let go of the words. Just take a few moments of silence together. Appreciate the safety in the room and the good community feeling and being appreciative of these wise teachers that have been handed down from our spiritual ancestors, the women and men who practiced before us. And now it's our turn in our complicated, often sticky lives to do the best we can to be wise, loving, skillful human beings. To model being free and peaceful. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.